Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 37, recorded Sunday, July 19th, 2020. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cinturpino. Well, summer is really cranking up here in New England. I think we're going to hit 100 degrees today. And we also kicked off our dive season last weekend with a drive and dive up to Fort Wetherall in Rhode Island. Great to get things started again. Also, this week, we're restarting our training classes with an open water class, and we've worked pretty hard to come up with an approach that strives to keep everyone safe as we continue to battle the COVID-19 crisis. One thing's for sure, we're divers. We like to wear masks. It's no big thing. Today's episode will feature two segments, both related to the history of diving. First, I'm going to begin a dialogue about a fairly unknown pioneer in our underwater photography world, E.R. Fenimore Johnson. And then it will be time for another installment of Sea Hunt, It's Still Alive. What's Mike up to this time? Let's get started. Today, I'm going to start a three-part adventure as we go a little deeper into the history of diving. We have had some giants in the underwater world, names like Hans Haas, Stan Waterman, and of course Jacques Cousteau, all who have opened up our eyes to the beauty and mystery of the ocean through their imagery. There are others, however, that might not be so well known but who have contributed immensely to the advancement of underwater photography. One of those fascinating individuals is E.R. Fenimore Johnson. I'm not sure how many people out there recognize this name. I sure never heard of him before some interesting twists and turns led me down to an incredible research path to find out more. It all started out with Sea Hunt, of course. As I was doing some digging on Sea Hunt, I found out that it was based on a film called Underwater Warriors. And that film was based on the book Naked Warriors by Commander Douglas Fane, a pioneer of diving with the Navy's underwater demolition team. So I got the film, and I got the book, and the book introduced me to Lieutenant Commander E.R. Fenimore Johnson. I subsequently found a YouTube video produced by the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia that chronicled the work Fenn Johnson did with the Navy's underwater demolition team. And that's where I decided to really find out who he was and what he did. Today is part one of this series, where I talk a bit about his background 
and his work up through World War II. Part two in a few weeks will be on the groundbreaking work he did with the Navy's underwater demolition team divers. And then in part three, I'll fill you in on the underwater photography and dive equipment company he owned named Fenjohn. Before I start, however, I want to thank Sid Mackin from the Historical Diving Society of the United States. Sid is a former president of the Historical Diving Society and has written extensively for the Journal of Diving History. Sid graciously shared a wealth of information on Fen Johnson. So much stuff that I decided I needed to make this a three-part series. Sid shared catalogs, photos, movies, patent requests, and so much more. Maybe someday down the line I'll get Sid on the podcast. I also want to thank Holly Jo Mengel, former archivist at Drexel University's Academy of Natural Science. Holly worked on cataloging the material that Fen Johnson left for the university. So thanks to both for their help with the research for this podcast. So who was E.R. Fenimore Johnson? Eldridge Reeves Fenimore Johnson was born in 1899. He was the son of Eldridge R. Johnson, who was the founder of the Victor Talking Machine Company in Camden, New Jersey. I will bet that many people would recognize the logo of the little fox terrier with his head looking into the old phonograph. Did you know that that dog's name was Nipper? Well, Fen Johnson, being the heir to this company and part of a wealthy family, I guess afforded him many advantages. Perhaps that's why his self-published autobiography is titled The Taste of the Silver Spoon. According to Sid Mackin, it really was meant to be distributed to his family in close relationships. I can't get a copy of that book, but Sid did send me a picture of his copy. Well, during World War I, Fen Johnson served in the Army, and afterwards he went to work for Victor, where he eventually became director and vice president. The family sold the business to RCA in 1927, and after the merger, he retired. That would have made him 28. Wow. So I guess with this newfound time came many newfound activities, including cruising around the world's ocean on his yacht, Elsie Fenimore. A couple of months ago, I did post that video on Scuba Shack Radio's Facebook page about the work he did with the Navy's underwater demolition team. But in the beginning of that film, Fen Johnson discusses how he got into diving and underwater photography. Seems like his yacht kept getting lines tangled around the prop, and he wanted to be able to clear them himself. So he got himself a Miller and Dunn shallow water diving helmet. Well, he also built an underwater movie camera and was doing all kinds of work with it. He even published a pamphlet or a manuscript titled Helmet Diving, a passport from civilization to savage lands and a new opportunity for photographers and students. Sid shared that 1929 movie with me. It's about three minutes and it's really cool stuff. It shows him getting into, a small, uh, getting into the ocean from a small boat, climbing down, and walking along the bottom. There are shots of parrotfish, coral, and gorgonia. Pretty amazing stuff for 1929.
By the way, it looks like he was using a Miller and Dunn version 2 shallow water diving helmet. From what I've been able to piece together with Sid's help is that Fenn started a research company called Mechanical Improvements Corporation. I'm not exactly sure when he created this company. I did find an entry in the 1938 release of the Industrial Research Laboratories of the United States book, where the company was based at 608 West Jersey Trust Building in Camden, New Jersey, and had a research lab in Morristown, New Jersey. It listed E.R. Fenimore Johnson as the president, with George Barnes as executive officer. The description of the company from that listing states, it's a laboratory and field research on underwater illumination and other problems of underwater photography, the design and construction of apparatus for specialized purposes, particularly those which require operations under conditions of pressure or vacuum. Tracing back through some old patent books, I did find that Mechanical Improvements Company was issued a patent in October of 1932 for a launching device for life preservers. And then in 1935, they got a patent for, of all things, a key holder. In an undated document titled Equipment for Underwater Photography, the Mechanical Improvements Corporation was offering a complete line of equipment for taking underwater pictures. This three-page pamphlet featured an underwater housing for the Bell & Howe professional hand cameras, an underwater rangefinder, underwater lamps, a professional model underwater motion picture camera using the Ackley camera mechanism, and a professional model underwater still camera using the Leica Model E. Somewhere along the way, the Mechanical Improvements Corporation morphed into Fenmore Johnson Laboratories. My research of old patent listings shows that both companies were at the same address. So Fenn Johnson is running a business and contributing to the development of underwater photography when the United States enters World War II. Well, in World War I, Fenn was in the Army. But by World War II, he sees the error of his ways and joins the Navy. Just kidding. Being ex-Navy... I guess I'm a little biased. He receives his commission as a lieutenant in the reserves and is assigned to the Bureau of Ordnance, where his work is to be with the Mine Countermeasures Resource Branch. I should also note that he donated the use of his company staff and yacht to help the war effort. Because of his expertise in underwater photography, Fenn is put to work by the Navy to develop cameras that can be used to document and assess damage to ships and also to be used to identify underwater mines. He also did some underwater photography work to show the cavitation of propellers. The pictures are pretty cool for this era, and studying cavitation was an important element in submarine and anti-submarine warfare. His laboratory also built the Model A-25 underwater camera for the Navy. It's a camera, not a housing. It's made of steel and painted Navy haze gray. With all the necessary external controls like film advance, shutter speed, shutter release, uh, operations, and focus, it takes up about 7 by 6 and a quarter by 6 and a quarter in dimensions. The camera can also accommodate a battery-powered flash attachment. 
The manual is seven pages long. It's typewritten and titled Model A25 Underwater Flash Camera Care and Operations. Fenn Johnson and his laboratory continued to, to develop instruments supporting underwater photography throughout World War II. But with the war ending, that does not end E.R. Fenimore Johnson's service to the Navy. He keeps a reserve commission and goes back to his laboratory. We'll pick up the story next time here on Scuba Shack Radio, where Fenn meets up with Commander Douglas Fane and does some pretty remarkable work with the underwater demolition team. I hope you found this part one interesting. Our underwater history is filled with many pioneers who gave us so much to our sport. E.R. Fenimore Johnson was one of those pioneers you may have never heard of before. Time for another installment of Sea Hunt, It's Still Alive. And today, we're going back to April 22nd, 1961. That was Season 4, Episode 16, and it was titled The Defector. So this episode starts out with Mike on vacation in the Bahamas. Somehow, he gets tapped to train a guy in skin diving. His student is named Bob Hicks. Well, Bob is not a very good student. He's really struggling underwater. Mike says that Bob takes to water like a fish takes to mountain climbing. So Mike tells Bob that he's not going to teach him anymore and he should not be diving. Bob is all upset and tells Mike that it's his responsibility if anything happens. Well, the scene shifts to Mike walking along the waterfront in a sport coat and tie. He's a sharp dresser. He gets stopped by a guy sitting in a car. This guy's name is Vincent Morell. Vincent says he'll pay Mike $500 if he teaches Bob how to dive. Says it's because he's his friend, and he gives Mike 100 bucks. Now the scene shifts to the restaurant. Mike is ordering lunch when a woman buys him a drink. Her name is Carol Sloan. She also wants Mike to teach Bob Hicks how to dive. Well, between the $500 and Carol's interest, Mike decides to reopen school. So now we're back underwater, and Bob miraculously becomes a good diver. But wait, Mike spots another diver in a wetsuit and hood. He chases him, but he loses him somehow. Back on deck, Carol shows up with a story that Bob is engaged to her kid sister back in the States, and that Bob is here visiting uh, Carol. Something smells fishy. Well, in the next scene, Mike is on the beach when he stumbles onto Vincent again. Vincent gives him another 200 bucks and says he wants to know when Bob can dive on his own. When pressed again, Vincent alludes to the interest because of something called Lloyds of London. Ah, insurance, maybe. Well, we go back underwater for more training, and this time there are two peeping Tom divers. Mike again can't catch up with him. He says it's getting weirder and weirder, and it's time for a showdown with Bob and Carol. 
So they tell Mike that Bob was carrying diamonds for a company in New York in a money belt that he lost while swimming in front of their house. That is why he needed to learn how to dive. Carol asks Mike if he'll help look for them. Mike suspects this to be a fake story. He tries to get a hold of the New York company, but it's late Friday and he can't contact them. He's on his boat when he sees some bubbles coming towards it. Could this be one of the divers he saw? The diver surfaces and comes on his boat. He takes off his hood. It's Ted Knight. Yeah, Judge Smales from Caddyshack. He's playing the part of Steve Powery with the FBI or CIA. Mike's not sure if he believes Steve, so he quizzes him about someone he knows and is satisfied that Steve is legitimate. Now the story comes out. Steve thinks Bob might be a defector. He was carrying top-secret microfilm in his money belt that was lost. Steve is confused why Bob wouldn't have contacted Washington, D.C. So Mike and Steve come up with a plan to get two birds with one skin diver. First, Mike collects his remaining $200 from Morell and talks to him about Bob being ready. While Mike figures Bob is going to go diving in front of the house, so he waits for him in the water just offshore. Sure enough, Bob goes in and starts searching. Mike goes up to him underwater and brings him to the surface. He tells Bob that he doesn't know how to search and that he has all the equipment below. Bob agrees to let Mike lead. So they tie a line around a rock and start a circular search. Eureka, the money belt. And just as they're picking it up, a spear hits between them. It's Vincent, and he's reloading the spear gun. Mike gets into an underwater fight with Vincent and gets his air hose cut. Well, he has to abandon his gear and head to the surface. And that's leaving Bob at the mercy of Vincent. Mike's only choice is to free dive down and fight Vincent, who has stabbed Bob in the shoulder with his Vulcan dive knife. Mike is boiling mad, and he rips the air hose out of Vincent's mouth and renders him unconscious and takes him to the surface. On the boat, Bob says that he needs to get the money belt taken to the American consulate. He's not a defector after all. Guess he was just scared. Never really figured out the real connection between Bob and Carol. Maybe the kid sister story was true. So the, she- the ending scene shifts to the restaurant. This time, Mike buys Carol a drink. Mike says they should go out on the town. Hey, I guess he kept the $500 from Vincent. The final line is, anything can happen in the Bahamas. So that's The Defector from Season 4, filmed in Nassau. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Sea Hunt, It's Still Alive. Well, that wraps up today's show. Hope you enjoyed it. And I appreciate you tuning in to Scuba Shack Radio. Please also consider subscribing to Scuba Shack Radio on your favorite podcast application. Also, let your friends know about the show. You can also find us at scubashackradio.com or check out our Facebook page at Scuba Shack Radio. 
Stay safe, everyone, and I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with more. So long. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.